right, everyone, we have a special treat today. We have one of our very own who's going to be preaching this morning, uh, Dr. John Dunn. Let's give him a round of applause. He loves attention. And um, John has been a part of our community for over two, almost two years exactly, coming up here in just a few weeks. And I remember when I met John and he was moving here to Minnesota by way of Scotland, by way of Las Vegas, he's been all over the place. And he is working as the New Testament professor at Bethel Seminary. And as of January, we found out that his position is going to be official going forward. At this point, he's tenure track. So that means good for you, great for us, we get to keep him. That's really what we're saying. Some of you have probably taken some equipping hour classes from John. We often have him up teaching classes. We will again this year. So we hope that you continue to, to check out the classes that he has to offer. He loves teaching, but he's also really passionate about the church. And I also want to say that he's become a really good friend of me and my husband. And we're so grateful to have him a part of Mill City, a part of our extended family as my husband and I. And I think you're really going to enjoy him kind of wrapping up our series today. So one more round of applause for Dr. John Dunn. Well, good morning, Mill City. It's great to be with you all, and it's wonderful to be able to officially close out this series on the books we don't read, referring to the minor prophets. Today, we're gonna look at Amos, and before we do, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be with us today, that you would speak to us, and that above all, that you would be glorified. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Now, some of my favorite stories are dystopian stories. Do we have any fans of dystopian literature or film? Okay, great. If you've not heard the term, dystopia is the opposite of utopia. So utopia is a good place and dystopia is a bad place, right? Some prominent examples of stories in the genre would include things like The Hunger Games or The Handmaid's Tale or Black Mirror or the writings of George Orwell, like 1984. These narratives paint a grim view of the future as a critique of society to say we're headed in the wrong direction. It's not for the purposes of predicting, but for calling people in the present to wake up to the world that they're helping to create right now. And in this series, the books we don't read. What we're trying to do is to help us see what these books are all, all about so that we want to engage them and we want to read them. And if you struggle with prophetic literature, one suggestion that I have is that you try engaging it like dystopia. And here's part of the reason why. We tend to think of the prophets from the Old Testament strictly as foretellers, as people who predicted the future. Here's what God is going to do one day. But the prophets were primarily foretellers. They spoke into the present situations of their day. Here's what God wants from you now. They called the people to account for what they had done. They were like enforcers of the covenant. And yes, there is some foretelling, predicting the future, but that is only a fraction of what they did. And it often served to reinforce the foretelling. Think of Jonah for a second. 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. That's foretelling, that's predicting the future, right? But is that what happens? No, that's not what happens. 
The people repent, and that's precisely the function of the prediction, of the foretelling. It's to cause people to change directions. And that dynamic is a lot like dystopian literature. And it helps us to see the imaginative nature of the prophetic writings, but also to understand how the, pro how the prophets can promise destruction and restoration at the same time. Kind of going back to the first sermon that Pastor Steph uh, preached in which she taught us about dialectical thinking. We can see these things uh, going on at the same time. And with that dynamic in mind, let's now turn to look at Amos. As for what the text of Amos is primarily about, the main theme is justice and injustice. And you've probably gathered from this series and from your reading of the Minor Prophets already that the prophets of Israel weren't exactly in the business of trying to make their listeners comfortable, right? I, there's no way of knowing this, but I have to imagine that the prophets were all Enneagram 8s, right? Maybe, maybe not Jonah, but I think, I think it works for the rest of them. And I say this as an Enneagram 7, somebody who loves to have fun and loves parties and hates conflict, right? I know I would make a, a really awful Old Testament prophet, right? But perhaps the prophet who was most up for delivering a hard message was Amos. Now, the prophet lived in the 8th century before Christ during the divided kingdom era, and his ministry was primarily directed towards the northern kingdom of Israel, but his prophetic spirit is still very much relevant for us today. Amos even inspired the great leader of the civil rights movement, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. In his letter from Birmingham jail, Martin Luther King spoke to how he originally resented being called an extremist for his brand of nonviolent protest. But as I continued to think about the matter, he said, I gradually gained a bit of satisfaction from being considered an extremist. The reason for this satisfaction, Dr. King explains, is because of key figures who each in their own way were examples of some form of extremism. And he lists people like Jesus and Paul and the reformer Martin Luther, and Abraham Lincoln, and Thomas Jefferson, and John Bunyan, and Amos. And he cites Amos 5.24 to support his desire for justice. Let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like a mighty stream. The fascinating thing about that passage, though, when we look at it, is that it's all about worship which in ancient Israel would have included more than singing songs. It would have included annual festivals and animal sacrifices and agricultural offerings. Let's take a look at the context there in chapter five. God declares rather pointedly, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. The turn to justice here in the context of worship might appear random at first blush. But what the turn to justice actually demonstrates is that the core problem that God finds 
with Israel is not their festivals, not, not the sacrifices and offerings in and of themselves, but rather the problem is that these were being performed by those who were practicing injustice. And the turn to justice in this context situates justice as an expression of worship. Injustice, in other words, is distorted worship. And it's the relationship between justice and worship that I want us to focus on today. And this theme of God rejecting the vain and empty practices of the people is actually all throughout the minor prophets. God is not interested in ritual for ritual's sake. As Joel declares, rend your hearts and not your garments, referring to rituals of mourning. Tear your clothes all you want, but if your heart's not in it, what does it matter? Hosea declares that God desires mercy over sacrifice and acknowledgement of God over burnt offerings. And there in Hosea, it's not that God is repudiating the sacrificial system, but whereas sacrifice was necessary in the life of Israel, it was not sufficient to reconstitute a right relationship with God. Sacrifice all you want, in other words, but if you neglect to show mercy to others and if you refuse to learn the ways of God, what do you gain by sacrificing? And some of you may be wondering, isn't the problem that rituals are inherently empty, right? Don't we just need to get rituals out of the way and that will help to engage our hearts? Well, I think that's a false either or, and I don't think that's what these passages are saying. Now, everyone's different, and just like there are different love languages for how we express love in friendships and in family relationships and in romantic relationships, I think there are different ways that we relate to God. A great resource for this is The Sacred Pathways by Gary Thomas. If you recall, about a year and a half ago, we did a panel here at Mill City in which we talked about this book, and I, I expressed my affinities with ritual. And so for me, rituals are really important because humans are inevitably ritualistic, and the Christian life is full of rituals. And so the question is, which rituals do we do and why, and how are we being formed and shaped by the rituals that we practice? Although our rituals are very different from that of ancient Israel, we still have our own rituals. And so the message of the prophets, put in terms that we might more readily recognize, is that God doesn't want your Bible reading or, or, your, or your tithing or your church attendance or your participation in communion or whatever else we might do as Christians if it means that we aren't going to be the sort of people who pursue justice. And what we're not talking about when we're talking about pursuing justice is being like the Godfather, Don Vito Corleone, right? Or like Tony Soprano, right? These characters who think they're pursuing justice by enacting revenge on injustices that were done against them. Right, what's interesting about these characters too, these mob characters regularly participate in church. They confess their sins to priests, right? They show up for their nieces and nephews' first communion service, and they, they go through the motions, and yet they perform all sorts of villainous and violent actions. Or for a more recent pop cultural example, how about Cersei Lannister from Game of Thrones, right? I think especially of her involvement with the faith of the seven and that ritual walk of shame at the end of season five. That was clearly an empty ritual for her. There was no contrition. There was no repentance. 
And so the hypocrisy and the disconnect with these characters in terms of their alleged faith and their actions are so obvious and apparent to us, right? What we're dealing with in the prophets is admittedly more subtle, but it is no less sinister. The kind of justice we're talking about today is about the treatment of the most vulnerable in society, the poor, the needy, the refugee, the asylum seeker, the orphan, the widow, young girls being sex trafficked, etc. The injustices that the prophets were concerned with were exploiting these kinds of people, taking advantage of them and failing to care for them. Remember Micah 6, 8? Micah proclaims that what God ultimately demands of his people is justice and mercy and humility. As Pastor Steph told us, Micah 6.8 is like a lens through which we can read the prophets. And the reason is because this theme of justice and worship just pervades all of it. But in Amos, there is a concentrated focus on it. The first two chapters of Amos perfectly set up this theme, but they also highlight Amos's rhetorical strategy and his poetic style. Amos opens with a reference to the Lord roaring from Zion, referring to his place in the Jerusalem temple. And from his position in the temple, he pronounces judgment upon Israel's enemies, including Damascus and Gaza and Tyre and Edom and the Ammonites and Moab. But then climactically, the pronouncements turn to the southern kingdom of Judah, and then the sequence culminates against the northern kingdom of Israel. The text is actually building to these indictments against Israel, and you can see how much longer that section is compared to the others. And as you read the opening chapters of Amos, you can almost imagine the people of God cheering along as they hear these pronouncements against their enemies. Amos is luring in the people of God, and then he flips the script to shine a light on the things that Israel are guilty of as well. And it's an effective strategy. It's very similar to what Nathan does to David, if you're familiar with that story in 2 Samuel 12. Nathan tells David a parable, but it's a veiled critique of David's injustice against Uriah and Bathsheba. David recognizes injustice in the parable, and then Nathan says, you are the man. It's the very same tactic that we see here in Amos. But there's even more going on symbolically. There is a pattern in these opening chapters that's really important to point out. Amos repeats this pronouncement of judgment eight times against each of these eight kingdoms with this opening oracle, because of three sins and for four sins, I will not relent. But if you try to count the trespasses listed for each kingdom, it is clear that three or four sins are not mentioned for any of the foreign kingdoms. Let's look at the first example of this to illustrate the point in Amos 1. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent. That's the opening of the oracle. Because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. There's the indictment. Notice there's only one. Now we get ensuing judgments. I will send fire on the house of Hazael that will consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad. I will break down the gate of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Avon and the one who holds the scepter in beth Aden. The people of Aram will go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. 
Notice that in this pronouncement, we have three parts. We have the opening of the judgment oracle, three yet four, the indictments or wrongdoing, followed by the judgments that will result. And this pattern or template is carried out for each of the eight kingdoms. But again, the odd part, not more than two indictments are listed for any of the six foreign kingdoms, despite this refrain of three and four. In the case of Judah, however, one can count three things. And in the case of Israel, one can count more than four things. What's going on here? Is Amos so upset that he forgot how to count, right? It, you, one gets the impression, though, as you read through these judgments, that as it progresses, the people of God are even more deserving of judgment than the foreign nations. Let's take a look at the final oracle against Israel, the last kingdom in this list. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. Now, there may be some debate about how to count these, but it seems that there are five specific indictments that are listed, which intriguingly exceeds the three yet four benchmark. But also note the flow about the treatment of the poor to vulnerable girls to improper worship. And the oracle against Israel continues from here, but now Amos turns to share the things that God has done for them. And it's because of what God has done for them that their indictments are even more egregious. And before Amos turns to deliver the ensuing judgments, he provides two more indictments in verse 12. But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. And with these two additional indictments, we now have a total of seven. Now, there may be other ways to count this. It could be more than seven, which again, at any rate, it exceeds the three yet four threshold. But it seems to me that the numerology is significant. Israel's transgressions are complete and thus their judgment is completely deserved. As already stated in these indictments, one of the key things that God is upset with is Israel's distorted worship. And this runs all the way through from here to the end of the book. Israel continues praising God and going through all the motions and rituals of worship while neglecting their responsibility to be a just people. Amos is fundamentally concerned to show, however, that this disconnect nullifies their worship. And it's not just that it nullifies their worship, it actually changes their worship into sin. Take a look at Amos chapter four, where Amos refers to two centers of Israel's worship and sacrifice, Bethel and Gilgal. Go to Bethel and sin. Now, I'm sure this is the favorite verse of every student at Northwestern, but uh, you know, let's, let's, let's stay on target here. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your freewill offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do, declares the sovereign Lord. 
The very worship of God is called sin by Amos because of their improper motivations and because of a lack of holistic transformation, including their neglect of justice. And as a result, Amos pronounces judgment against the very places of worship. Amos chapter 3. On the day I punish Israel for her sins, I will destroy the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. Distorted worship is the problem, and as such, the sites of worship will receive punishment. And Amos is unrelenting in his pronouncements of judgment against Israel for her injustice, but Amos is not entirely one-sided. Like Pastor Steph mentioned in her first sermon, there's a dialectical component to Amos's teaching here. So even as Amos is pronouncing judgment after judgment against Israel, there's hope in the final few verses. But you got to get to the very end for any hope at all. And at the very end of Amos, it speaks of the restoration of David's fallen shelter, or, or tent as I prefer to translate it. And it describes an era of agricultural abundance. Amos 9 declares, in that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins. I will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. When you read through Amos, there's judgment after judgment. And then at the end, Amos concludes with a sudden vision of restoration. A prominent German scholar from the 20th century named Julius Wellhausen described the abruptness in this way. He said it's like Amos all of a sudden giving his listeners roses and lavender instead of blood and iron. And the original quote was in German, so you can imagine it sounded even more intense than that, right? Now, it's, it's really hard to overstate the sharp transition here in Amos, right? How many of you love movies with great twist endings, right? Uh, I, I'm a big fan. I love when I don't see a, an ending coming, something really unexpected. But what we have here is more than a twist. It's a radical shift in tone. And it reminds me of one of my favorite films by Paul Thomas Anderson called Magnolia. Has anybody seen Magnolia? Did anybody say Magnolia as an example of a great ending with a great twist? Okay, that's fine. Uh, well, if you haven't seen it, it stars Tom Cruise, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Julianne Moore, William H. Macy, a bunch of others. It's, it's one of those films that has like nine storylines going at once, kind of like Love Actually or Crash, except here every storyline is bleak and depressing. But then, with like five minutes left in the film, something completely unexpected happens, something that you definitely could not have anticipated. And it kind of gives the ending of the film a little bit of a happy ending. But you got to slog through a lot of dark, it's like a three hour film, you got to slog through a lot of darkness to get there. And I don't want to say exactly what happens because I hate spoilers and I already feel bad sharing this much about the film, but it's really unexpected 
just like we have here in, in Amos. But although it's a radical shift in tone, I want to suggest that it's not actually a radical shift in content. Now, it's not immediately clear what it means to rebuild David's fallen tent or shelter. What exactly is this vision of hope primarily about? Most understand this to be a reference to David's kingdom, right? Here portrayed as a kind of shabby shelter instead of a prominent royal house, right? And this may be true, but I think there are good reasons for understanding it a bit differently, right? The judgment throughout Amos is primarily concerned with Israel's worship, right? Places like altars and sacrificial sites and the temple are what's in focus. And so it seems to me that a vision of hope consistent with that message is not necessarily concerned with the kingdom, although that would be part of it, but specifically with restoring the temple system. All throughout the prophets, we see this pattern where there's agricultural abundance associated with a thriving temple system. When worship is rightly ordered, it impacts creation. And the prominence of wine here in this passage in particular evokes the sacrificial system as a symbol for blood. And additionally, wine itself was often used in the temple practices with libations and drink offerings. And so it seems to me that this seemingly random vision of hope at the end of Amos is not random at all. What it portrays is that God will fix precisely what needs fixing, that in the future, worship and justice will go hand in hand. And this passage at the end of Amos is actually cited in the New Testament. And so it's helpful to see what purpose it plays in a New Testament context. It's only cited once, and it's cited by James in a story from Acts, Acts chapter 15, which is commonly known as the Jerusalem Council. At this point in Acts, just to set the scene, Paul and Barnabas had just gotten back from their first missionary journey, and they saw the first fruits of the Gentile mission. Now you have to keep in mind, these are early days in the history of Christianity, and there's a lot that they didn't have figured out yet, right? Do Gentiles need to become Jewish? And most controversially related to that, do they need to be circumcised? And at the council, Peter recounts how he had seen Gentiles receive the Spirit without them becoming practicing Jews. But even Peter, though, was originally anxious about this development. Paul records a scene in Galatians 2 where Peter is uh, fellowshipping with Gentiles, but then once people from the circumcision party appears, he retreats. Now, I'm an Enneagram 7, I love parties, but even I know that the circumcision party is one you don't want to get invited to, right? <laughs> but even though, right, Peter is anxious at first here in Acts, we see him committed to this development, to the full inclusion of Gentiles on the basis of them having received the Spirit, which brings up that temple imagery regarding God's presence. And then, after Peter declares this, James, the brother of Jesus, addresses the situation, and in this context, he cites Amos 9 to say that the prophets agree with what is taking place in their midst. The Gentiles, who were formerly outsiders, are accepted by God as Gentiles into the worship of God's people, which means that the Gentiles don't need to be circumcised. And then Acts goes on to say that the people were, were relieved, which has to be the biggest understatement in the Bible. <laughs> it's no surprise, though, that James uses Amos in this way to make this point, given what we learn from him in the letter that he wrote. In chapter 1, he writes, 
Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, the word for religion there in Greek, phraskeia, is used to refer to worship as a set of beliefs and practices. Now, notice that the kind of religion, or, or better, the kind of worship that counts with God is the kind that manifests itself in things like looking after orphans and widows. And then just a few verses later in the same letter, James talks about the royal law, which is loving your neighbor as yourself. He calls it royal because we see this chiefly displayed in our King Jesus, but it's also royal because of its primacy, right? If you're loving your neighbor, you're not stealing from them. If you're loving your neighbor, you're not gonna murder them. If you're loving your neighbor, you're not gonna covet their spouse. And if you're loving your neighbor, then you'll care about their just treatment. If we read the minor prophets, these books we don't read, they'll remind us of the importance of justice for what our faith is all about. And this is very much a New Testament teaching as we saw with James and as we see chiefly in the life of Christ. We are to do more than tick the boxes of ritual performance, which for us would be things like reading our Bibles and tithing and coming to church and participating in communion. Injustice is a distortion of worship because worship is meant to be formative. It is an opportunity to express our faith and to be encouraged in our faith, but it is also an opportunity to be formed and shaped into the kind of people and community who love and pursue justice and who long to see God's kingdom justice on earth as it is in heaven. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we know we live in a broken world, and so we pray that you would instill empathy and sensitivity in us. May we never become complacent in our worship and in our faith practices, and we pray that you would form us into a people that love justice and pursue justice as an expression of our worship to you and as an affirmation and a testimony to the world that you are a just God. Amen.